We'll take a Bible, find Colossians chapter 1. You can take your notes out that are in the bulletin. This morning is week 1 of 15 in this short letter that we call Colossians. I'm excited for this series. I've never preached through the book of Colossians. I've studied it. I had some focused study in this book during my time at seminary, but I've never preached through this book. So I'm excited to preach through it for the first time. I'm also excited about Colossians because this series is going to take us all the way up to the last Sunday of the year where we're going to celebrate Christmas. And the book of Colossians is a great lead up to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Christ. The absolute unrivaled supremacy of Jesus Christ. Everything in Colossians moves in that direction. When you look at the individual pieces and you look at the book as a whole, everything in this book is reminding us over and over and over again, we're going to talk about it for 15 Sundays, that Jesus is absolutely supreme over the entire cosmos. He has no equal. He has no rival. Look with me, if you will, at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to read to verse 8. As you look at this opening chapter, really verse 1 All the way to verse 14 is an entire unit, but we're going to break it up into two Sundays. And so this morning we're going to read Colossians 1 beginning in verse 1 all the way to verse 8. The Word of God says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. That's the word of God. We're going to start this morning with some basics, just introductory matters related to this letter. Colossians is... A letter. We just looked at the book of Jeremiah. It's a prophetic book. Colossians is very different than Jeremiah. It's a letter. And as we read in verse 1 and 2, it's written from Paul and Timothy to the church at Colossae. It's interesting. We usually attribute this letter to Paul, but it says clearly it's from Paul and Timothy. And so Paul might have been the dominant voice, but as he thought about what he wanted to say to the church in Colossae, he includes Timothy and authorship. Paul, I think, is familiar to most of us. He may not be familiar to all of us, but Paul was an apostle. He was one uh, untimely born as he described his birth and his life and his calling to be an apostle. He was a great missionary and church planner, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Timothy was a co-worker of Paul. He was a bit younger than Paul. He grew up in a town called Lystra. 
His father was a Greek, and the implication of the New Testament is that his father was not a believer, but his mother and his grandmother were both Jewish Christians, and they had an important role to play in bringing Timothy to faith in Jesus Christ. When Paul got ready to go on his second missionary journey, he had been through this area before, and he stopped. He was no longer working with Barnabas, and he picked up Timothy on the way, and they became fast friends. Timothy traveled with Paul all over the place. Many times, when you read about Paul and Timothy as a a duo, it's described in terms of Paul being the mentor and Timothy being the protege, but that's not the description here. Paul doesn't sort of put Timothy down on a sub-level from himself. He just says Timothy is a faithful brother, and he's sending this letter with me. Now, I want you to know that when Paul wrote this letter, this letter to the church in Colossae, he wrote at least two other letters. One of the letters that he wrote is the New Testament book of Philemon. And I understand why the English canon is arranged the way that it's arranged in the New Testament, but part of me kind of wishes Philemon was stuck right behind Colossians because those two letters were written to Colossae. Philemon lived in Colossae, and they would have been delivered together, one taken to the church and one taken to Philemon. He also wrote a letter We don't have it in the New Testament. He wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea. If we had it, we would call it Laodiceans. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Laodiceans. But we don't have that letter. But we know that Paul wrote it. He references it in this book. And what he says to the church in Colossae is, hey, read this, and then get the one I sent to Laodicea, and you all swap, and you read that one. We don't have that letter. It's not part of the New Testament canon, but we know Paul wrote it at the same time. Paul, when he wrote these letters, was in prison. And there's a rabbit trail we could go down here to say where was he in prison. And I'm just going to be honest with you to say there's three choices. I'm about 75% sure I know the right answer, but I'm not 100% sure. It was maybe Rome. It was maybe Ephesus. It's unlikely that it was Caesarea. If I was in Las Vegas and you made me bet, I'd put 75 on Rome, and I'd put 25 on Ephesus, And I'd say, it's not even worth putting a penny on Caesarea. I don't think that's where he's at. But he was in prison when he wrote these letters. And I just think it's worth noting that Paul thought of himself in terms of missionary journeys and travels and planting churches. He was a man on the go. He did not stay still very long. And for Paul, on these several occasions when he was in prison, that was not what he wanted to be doing with his life. And there was probably a sense in Paul's mind as he sat in prison these different times thinking, God, would you please get me out of here so that I could go out? He didn't want to go out and just sit in front of the TV and watch college football every day. He didn't want to go out and just make a million dollars because he wanted to be rich and wealthy and famous. He said, God, would you please get me out of here so that I could go preach the gospel and plant a church somewhere. And he did a lot of that, but at different periods, the Lord and his sovereignty stopped Paul, and you and I are the beneficiaries of that because we read these letters that Paul had time to stop and to think about and to pray over, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these books that we now read in our New Testament. As far as we know, speaking of Paul's travels, he never went to Colossae. Sort of makes this letter unique. 
He did not travel there. He did not plant the church there. Every indication is that Epaphras was the one who started this church. When you look at Acts chapter 19, there's a small note. There's a passing reference to the fact that Paul stayed in Ephesus for two whole years preaching and ministering. It was a leading city in the province of Asia. And during those two years in Ephesus, Luke says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so I'll give you a couple of maps. You can see on the the map on the top left, that's Greece in the yellow. And then it's what we call Turkey in the brown. And Ephesus is a leading city in that red circle. And then down here on the bottom right is a sort of a zoom in on what we call Uh, western Turkey, and that red circle has three cities in it, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. About seven years ago, we did a series through the book of Revelation, and we looked at the letters that Jesus sent to the seven churches in the first part of Revelation, and we talked about Laodicea, and we talked about its relationship with Hierapolis and Colossae. These were sort of like sister cities. It's probably not accurate to say they were like Dallas, Arlington, Fort Worth, because they were not that kind of metropolis. They didn't just bleed together entirely like those cities do. But maybe it's not too much of a stretch to say that they were like uh, Odessa and Midland. I mean, you can definitely tell when you're in one and when you go to the other, but those two cities just get lumped together many times. Our airport has both of them, the Midland-Odessa International Airport, and a lot of things in this area uh, get lumped together as Midland-Odessa, or as I like to say, Odessa-Midland. Those two cities go together. These three cities went together, okay? Laodicea, Hierapolis, and our city, Colossae. This was a wealthy area. Their wealth came from breeding a special kind of sheep and dyeing the wool and making a certain kind of fabric. And so there was a lot of money in this area. In the year 60 AD, there was a massive earthquake that leveled, basically leveled these three cities to the ground. Laodicea was rich enough and big enough and prosperous enough that they rebuilt their city without any aid from Rome. They said, we got it. We can rebuild bigger and better on our own. It doesn't seem like Colossae ever quite recovered. I mean, they built back and they tried to make another run at it, but they just never quite built back to what they were previously. And truth be told, Colossae was sort of the black sheep of these cities. And I use the word black sheep because they had sheep and wool in this area. They were the smallest. They were the least prosperous. They were the least metropolitan. They were the least sophisticated. And when this earthquake came along, they just never quite recovered. It's fascinating that Paul would write a letter to a church in a town like that. It's not to the biggest, not to the most populous, not to the most important, it's not to a big metropolitan center. Yes, he wrote a letter to Ephesus, but he also wrote a letter to little old Colossae. This was Gentile territory. There were a few Jews in this area, but it was mostly Gentiles that Paul was writing to. Now, I want you to look at verse 2 in the text. Verse 2, and I'm reading from the ESV, says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Saints and faithful brothers. That almost sounds like Paul thought of them as two groups of people. Like there are saints and there are faithful brothers, and I'm writing to both of them. But an equally good translation of verse 2 would look something like this, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ 
at Colossae. That word saints literally means holy. And grammatically in this verse, it could function as an adjective. And he could be saying, I'm writing to the brothers at Colossae. They are holy and they are faithful. And no, Paul didn't say, I'm writing to the brothers and sisters, but he didn't need to say that because the Greek word for brothers covered both of those in the context. You don't need to translate it differently because that's what it meant in the original Greek. It would be like in Spanish talking about your abuelos, your grandparents, your grandma and your grandfather. That's a masculine noun, but it covers male and female, and that's who Paul is writing to here, the saints, the holy, and the faithful brothers. Now, all that brings us to the big idea. Here's the big idea of our passage. It's really simple. Paul thanked God for the Christians in Colossae. He says in verse 3, we always thank God when we pray for you. We're praying for you, and when we pray for you, we give thanks to God for you. When I was younger, I remember a book in my home. My mom was a children's director at our church, and we had this book called Children's Letters to God. Any of you remember this book? I couldn't find it online almost anywhere. You couldn't buy it on Amazon. You couldn't find anywhere. But we had this book, Children's Letters to God, and it's filled with prayers that children wrote down, not knowing more than likely that the parents or the publishers were setting them up to put these Uh, prayers into a book and the handwriting was always sort of in children's handwriting and there was scribbles and crayons and pictures with each one and you get this book and you're meant to read the prayers of these children but I'm going to be honest with you what you're really meant to do is laugh at the prayers of these children let me give you just a few examples of what's in this book dear God I want to be just like my daddy when I get big but not with so much hair all over Sam not a bad prayer Next, dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy from Joyce. Next, dear God, my turtle died. Is she there with you? If so, she likes lettuce from Susie. Dear God, did you mean for giraffe to look like that or was it an accident from Norma? One more, dear God, if you watch in church on Sunday, I will show you my new shoes from Mickey. So you read this book and you look at these prayers and you're meant to come away and say, oh, that's cute. Children are funny. Children say the darndest things. They don't have a filter or whatever. I just wonder, what if we published one of these books with grown-up prayers in it? And I don't mean the kind of prayers that you would pray if I told you I'm going to put your prayer into a book of prayers. Then you would be very formal and you would say lots of super holy things and you would try to throw in some big theological words so we would know how sophisticated you are. I just mean if we eavesdropped on your life and listened to your prayers and then we compiled a book of them, what that book might look like. I'm convinced that for some of us it would look like this. Nothing. I'm convinced that for others it would look like this. Lord, give me stuff. Lord, this last Thursday there were a lot of prayers. Please let the Tampa Bay Buccaneers miss this last field goal. Please let them miss this field goal. That that would be the sort of stuff that some of us prayed for. I'm convinced that for some of us, 
all of the book would look something like this. All of our prayers would be for sick people or for families who have recently lost loved ones. You know, one of the interesting things in the Bible, Old Testament and New, is that there's lots of prayers. You can read the prayers of God's people. That's what we're looking at this morning. Paul's praying. When you start in the book of Genesis and you go all the way to the book of Revelation, one of the fascinating things about those prayers is that many of those prayers are for God's people. It's not necessarily for more stuff. It's not necessarily that, you know, the, the, my favorite gladiator would win in the arena this week. It's not necessarily a lot of praying for people who are sick or suffering, although there is that. But there's an awful lot of prayer for the spiritual health and the spiritual growth of God's people. That looks a little bit different in the Old Testament than it does in the New Testament, but you see it in Old and New. People praying for the spiritual health and the spiritual growth of God's people. I mean, we could just go through. Moses prayed this way. Samuel prayed this way. David and Solomon prayed this way. We're studying the kings on Wednesday night. Jehoshaphat prayed this way. Hezekiah prayed this way. Daniel prayed this way. Isaiah prayed this way. Nehemiah prayed this way. Jesus prayed this way. Not just praying for stuff, not just praying that things would turn out the way we want them to, but praying for the spiritual health and the growth of God's people. That's what we're looking at this morning as Paul is praying for the church in Colossae. And we're going to finish this prayer next week, but this morning, really focusing on verse 3 to 8, I want to answer this question. Why did Paul give thanks? Why did he thank God for the Colossian Christians? What was it that he was so thankful about? Let me point out three things. Number one, Paul was thankful because these people had faith in Christ Jesus. They had faith in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful for you to God, Paul says, because I have heard of a report that you are people of faith and that your faith is in Christ Jesus. In the United States, you live in a nation virtually filled with people of faith. Very few people today, even today when secularism is on the rise and uh, atheism is on the rise and people are not willing to affiliate with a particular church or denomination, even today a lot of people will say, yes, I'm a person of faith. But people mean a lot of different things when they say I'm a person of faith. It doesn't mean they're a person who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Having faith in a vague, vanilla generic deity is of absolutely no value to anybody. That's what a lot of people mean when they say I'm a person of faith. They mean I believe there's someone, something up there doing something. It's all very vague and it's not very specific. It's not worth anything. What a lot of people mean really when they say I'm a person of faith is they mean they have faith in themselves. Their faith is turned inward. It's bent inward on their own abilities and capabilities. A lot of people, when they say, I'm a person of faith, they don't have even a, a notion that they are capable or that there's a God in heaven. They just mean, I'm generally an optimist. 
And I think things are going to work out for the best in the end. I just have faith that things are going to turn for the best sooner or later somehow, some way. But when Paul gives thanks for the people in Colossae, he is thankful because they have faith in Christ Jesus. Most basically, most fundamentally, that's what a Christian is. Somebody who has faith in Jesus Christ. They believe the truth about what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Christians are not people who are morally superior or spiritually more with it than everyone else around us. We are most basically people who have faith in Christ Jesus. Are you a person of faith? Not just optimism, not in yourself, not in some vague deity, some nebulous spiritual being. Are you a person who has faith in Jesus Christ? That's the first thing that Paul gives thanks for. Here's the second thing that he gives thanks for, the love that they have for all the saints. They were people of love for all the saints. This letter was written, we read verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers, or the holy and faithful brothers, to the saints. And he commends, Paul commends these believers, not only because he has heard of their faith in Christ Jesus, verse 4, but he's also heard of the love that you have for all the saints. They had love for the saints. Now, in 2021, we use the word saints in a lot of different ways. Sometimes we're talking about the New Orleans Saints football team. We don't like those guys. We like the Cowboys. We've lost a game, but we're still going to win the Super Bowl. We don't root for the saints. So we're not talking about those saints. Sometimes when we use the word saints, we're talking about really nice people. Oh, she's a saint. Oh, he's a saint. It's just salt of the earth. They're good folk. They're good people. That's not what we're talking about here. Sometimes, today, people use the word saint to talk about somebody who's been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. We have verified, or the Catholic Church has verified that they performed a miracle and they meet the criteria and it's been enough years since they died and now we're going to call them saint whoever. That's not the biblical idea of a saint. Most basically, in the New Testament, saints are Christians. Christians are saints. I was at a rodeo last night. A man who claimed to be a pastor got up and gave a devotion, and about 10 times he said, now I'm no saint, and I almost picked up a dirt clod and threw it across the arena and said, quit saying that. Yes, you are. You are. If you're not, then I really don't want to listen to anything that you have to say. You are a saint. A saint is a Christian. A Christian is a saint. And Paul says, take this in. I'm thankful to God for you because you have faith in Christ Jesus and you have love for all the saints, for all the other Christians. Does that mean that as the saints in Colossae walked up and down the halls of their church, would have been short halls because this was a house church, and they saw each other, that every time they saw each other, they got the warm fuzzies and the butterflies, and they thought, oh, I just love this person so much. I don't think it means that at all. I don't think it means that at all. I do think it means that as they interacted with each other, 
as they talked to each other, as they talked about each other, as they served each other, all of those actions were marked by love. I don't think Paul's talking about an emotion that they had. I'm thankful that you feel a certain emotion. That's not what he's saying. I'm thankful that you have faith in Christ Jesus, and I'm thankful that you show love, you act in a loving way toward all the saints. Thirdly, faith, love, hope. They were people with hope laid up in heaven. Look what Paul says in verse 4 and 5. He says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is one of those places in the New Testament where I wonder if Paul and Peter had talked about this idea at some point in their lives. Because if you'll turn over, I'll put it on the screen, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says something similar in verse 3. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Your inheritance from the Lord is not to be found on this earth in this life. It is being kept for you in heaven. Peter says. Paul says something very similar. He says, you have hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And so Paul gives thanks. He's thankful that these people have faith and love and hope. Or if you want to take those three and group them the way that we normally group them in English in the way that it probably rolls off your tongue, they had faith, hope, and love. And if you'll look at those verses, the ones in white, those are places where Paul is writing a letter to churches and he talks about in one little spot their faith, their love, and their hope. Their faith, their hope, their love. And then there's one in Hebrews and there's another one in Peter. This is a biblical concept. And I just want to stop here. This may seem so basic to you, but I just want to stop and make you think, ask you to think. When Paul thought about specific churches... When Paul stopped what he was doing and he started writing a letter to an actual church, Colossae, Corinth, Galatia, Thessalonica, when he's writing these letters and he's thinking about these people, he is thankful because they're people of faith, people of hope, people of love. What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about church? When you think about a specific church or you think about church in general? It's a pretty popular thing today to trash on church and to trash on churches and to criticize churches. I'm going to be honest with you. I have this tendency myself. I have a tendency to say Emmanuel's the greatest and to look at everyone else and say you're all pitiful. You're just the worst. Why can't you be more like us? I don't know that that's a healthy tendency for me or for any believer. Listen, the Apostle Paul knew all about the, the warts and the wrinkles of these churches. He knew their shortcomings. He knew their struggles. He knew they didn't have it all together. In fact, in all of these letters, at some point, Paul turns around 
Even in Philippians, where he really loves the church in Philippi, at the end he says, hey, you two women, knock it off. Get along. He knows there's issues in all of these churches. He's not blind to that. He doesn't ignore that. But I do think the Apostle Paul looked at these churches through what we could call a gospel lens. All these churches, all these issues, and he starts off and he says, you know what, I am thankful for you. You have faith in Christ Jesus, and you love other believers, you love the saints, and there is a hope stored up for you in heaven. And because of all those things, I'm thankful for you. He's looking at these churches through a gospel lens. And if you want to know what do I mean a gospel lens, look at this quote from John Newton. John Newton, famous slave trader, I should say infamous slave trader, saved by God's grace, became a preacher, became a hymn writer, became a a leading abolitionist in the British Empire. He said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think you look at individual believers through that kind of gospel lens and say, are they perfect? Are they a fully formed disciple? Do they have it all together? No, no, no. But they're not who they used to be because God's grace has done something in their lives. And when Paul looked at these churches, churches like the church in Colossae, a church that had some major issues, major issues, Paul starts off and he says, you know what, I'm thankful for you. Your people of faith, your people of love, your people with hope, and I thank God for you. Here's the reality. It is only through the gospel that any of us become people of faith, love, and hope. It's only through the gospel. Paul mentions the gospel in verse 5. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Now, later in this letter, he's going to elaborate on what the gospel is, but he doesn't do that here. He just mentions the gospel, and he assumes that they know what the gospel is. He assumes that the Christians in Colossae know that the gospel is a message about the holy God who sent his only son to die on a cross for sinful people so that God could be merciful and forgiving towards sinners without compromising his holy, just, righteous character that when sinners repent of their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they can be brought into God's family. They can be brought into his kingdom. That's the gospel. Paul says, you've heard the word of truth. You've heard the gospel. Notice what else he says about the gospel. And I'm going to give these to you quickly. He says, the gospel bears fruit. That's in verse 6. Not only does the gospel save people, but it changes people. Saves us and it changes us. Secondly, he says the gospel is universal. Not in the sense that everyone will go to heaven when they die, but in the sense that the one gospel message is good for whoever you're talking to. It doesn't matter what their skin color is. It doesn't matter what their passport says. He says the gospel's bearing fruit among you. And let's be honest, it's bearing fruit in the whole world. Everywhere we go, we have one gospel message to preach. Doesn't matter who you talk to. Doesn't matter what side of Odessa you live in. Doesn't matter if you live in Midland or Odessa, Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea. It doesn't matter. There's one gospel message for all people. The gospel is truth. It's true. 
There's something in the gospel that you need to understand cognitively, intellectually, and it's true. The gospel brings grace. God's grace comes through the gospel, verse 6. Lastly, verse 7, the gospel requires a messenger. In Colossae, the gospel didn't just get dropped down out of heaven directly to them, but it came not from Paul, but from Epaphras, our faithful fellow servant who brought the good news of the gospel to the people in Colossae. Now look, we live on the other side of the world from the city of Colossae, other side of the world, 2,000 years later. The gospel is still the gospel. hasn't changed. You can go back around to the other side of the world. You can fast forward world history, however many years are left until the Lord returns. The gospel is not going to change. God is still holy. You and I are still sinful people. Jesus is still the only way that a person, a sinful person, can be made right with the holy God. And we are still called to confess our sin and turn from it and turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have never done that, today would be a great day to do it. To simply acknowledge, God, you're unique, you're holy, there's nobody like you. God, I'm a sinner and I've messed my life up. God, and I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross so that I could be forgiven. You punished sin in your son so that your grace could be extended to me, your mercy could be extended to me. And somebody, me this morning, a grandparent, a grandma, somebody like Timothy's mom or grandma, somebody has shared that message with you. Some bodies have shared that message with you. And today you need to stop, repent of your sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that these people heard. It's the gospel that Paul preached. And for all of that, Paul gave thanks for this church. He was thankful for this church. It brings me to one more question. Everything that he said is about the Colossians. You're holy, you're faithful, brothers. You have faith, you have love, you have hope. And yet he is not thanking them. He's describing them, but he's not thanking them. He's thanking God for them. So the last question is this. Why did Paul thank God, not the Colossian Christians? Why did he thank God for the Christians in Colossae? The answer is their faith, hope, and love was a result of God's gracious work. They couldn't take credit for any of the good things that Paul's saying about them. They don't get to take credit for the fact that they have faith in Jesus, that they love each other, that they have a hope stored up in heaven. They don't get to take credit for the fact that they're holy and faithful, that they're brothers and sisters. It's all a result of God's gracious work. And you see a hint of this. We'll see it all the way through the series, but you see a hint of it if you'll look at verse 2. Verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Again, I'm reading ESV. In Christ at Colossae. I looked up different translations. There's a lot of different uh, prepositions used for in or at. In Christ at Colossae. What Paul literally says is that he's writing this letter. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's from Timothy, our brother. He's writing to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. That's what he literally says. They're in Christ. They're in Colossae. This is important. 
They live in Colossae. It's the third most important city of this group of cities. That's where they live. That's where they work. That's where they go to school. If you pull up the tax records, that's where their homes are located. You look at their uh, tax returns. That's the address they put down. It's Colossae. When they send their kids to school, it's the schools in Colossae. It's Colossae. That's where they live. They're in Colossae. It's equally true that they are in Christ. I mean, they're in Colossae. You could go there and you could see them at this time and this day. But they are also in Christ. They are united by faith to the one who is supreme over all the cosmos. Remember, this book, the whole book, when you take it as a whole and all the parts and the big picture, is a book about the absolute unrivaled supremacy of Jesus Christ. And he says it right here. You saints and faithful brothers, I know you live in Colossae, but the really important thing about you is that you are in Christ. You are united to Christ. I've been a member of five churches in my life. Trinity Baptist Church in Amarillo, Texas. Ninth and O Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. North Benson Baptist Church in Frankfort, Kentucky. First Baptist Church in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. And the best church in Odessa, Emmanuel Baptist Church, right here in Odessa. Okay, five churches. I think about those five churches, and let me be real honest. They all have had, will have, warts, wrinkles, shortcomings, issues, problems, hypocrisy, trouble, stuff that I would like to just flip a switch and change. They've all had that. They will all have that. But I also look at those churches, and if I look at them through a gospel lens, yes, I can see things that need to be addressed and things that need to change. But I look at them through a gospel lens, and I say, you know what? There's people in those churches that are holy and faithful. They've been set apart, and they're faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're people who believe, they have faith, they love other Christians, Not perfectly, but they love other Christians. And there is hope stored up for them in heaven. And they've heard the gospel message. It has not only saved them, but it's changing them. That's true for every church I've been a member of. It's true for this church. And when you take all those things into consideration, what you come down at the end and say, those things are true of those churches and those Christians in those churches because of Christ. Because they are in Christ. Christ. Yes, they're in Amarillo. Yes, they're in Louisville. They're in Frankfurt. They're in Kingfisher. They're in Odessa. But most importantly, they are in Christ. They've been united to the supreme king over all the cosmos. And for that, we give thanks. So let's do that together.